Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, both marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore marine aquaculture, particularly open ocean aquaculture. What is it? Do we need it? If so, under what conditions? Why are so many opposed to it? And if it's important, how can we gain public support for it here in the United States? Joining me today are Dr. Michael Rust, NOAA's Aquaculture Science Coordinator, and Don Kent, President of the Hub SeaWorld Research Institute, one of the nation's leading research centers in aquaculture. I'm in Long Beach in California. Mike Rust is in Seattle, Washington, and Don Kent is in San Diego, California. Welcome. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for here. All right. So it's always good to start at the beginning. So, Don, tell us, what is aquaculture, and what do we mean by open ocean aquaculture? Okay, Jerry. Um, imagine farming. It basically, aquaculture is just aquatic farming. Uh, you grow plants and animals in water instead of on land. So instead of chickens or cows, farmers are growing fish and mussels. And instead of um, uh, wheat, farmers are growing uh, seaweed. Uh, there's all kinds of applications, not only for human consumption, but there's a lot of interest in uh, biofuels in the same way they grow corn or ethanol. There's a lot of interest in growing macroalgae for biofuel conversion. And there's also interest in growing organisms that have uh, significant uh, properties for curing disease with bioreactive compounds. So we're going to be looking at some footage here. Um, Don, there are many people who say that uh, aquaculture production is much more efficient way to create protein than agriculture on land. Please explain what we mean by that. Well, it's more efficient in several ways. One, um, the space is less to grow the, the organisms because uh, you've got three dimensions to play with. Instead of cattle grazing on pasture land uh, with just one layer of cows out there, you've got cages that go down into the depths and uh, the fish use that, the depth as well as the area. Um, same with uh, shellfish, where strings of mussels or oysters are uh, put down into the water column. Also, uh, most of the species, in fact, all the species that you want to grow in aquaculture are cold-blooded. So the animals are not using uh, energy to uh, produce heat to keep their, their bodies at a constant temperature. Also, they're, they're not working against gravity the way terrestrial animals have to. So, the energy utilized in a, in a basal or the, the basic uh, metabolic state for rest is much less than a terrestrial organism. So the food conversion efficiency is much higher. We're looking here at a slide that shows uh, one jar of very clean water and one jar of quite green water. What's the difference here, Don? Well, before the, uh, before the mussels went into the water, you can see what normal seawater looks like. It has a lot of uh, monocellular algae and phytoplankton, zooplankton swimming around in it. 
And after a while, it looks like the clean jar. That is, the, the mussels have filtered that water and cleaned it of all the biological, and that's their food. They basically siphon their food out of the water column, thereby cleaning it up. There's some places uh, in Florida, in fact, where they're looking to clean up bodies of water by actually introducing oysters back into the water to, to clarify it, to offset the impact of too much nutrient flow into river systems. Of course, they're doing that right now in Chesapeake Bay, and that's something that's being considered right here in Long Beach. So I think it's pretty clear that aquaculture is agriculture in the ocean, and many of us would like to think that we could do agriculture in the ocean, that is aquaculture, and in, avoid some of the problems that we've had with agriculture on land. What, what's the case for uh, aquaculture? And how important is aquaculture to the seafood supply today? And what are the prospects for the future? Mike Russ, I want you to start with this and please start with a global perspective. Yeah, sure. Um, so currently aquaculture provides about half the seafood the world eats. Um, but I think more importantly, aquaculture is going to provide all of the future increases um, in seafood that the world eats. Um, the other place, obviously, we get seafood is from capture fishing in the wild, and that's uh, been stable, plateaued uh, for the last couple of decades. So any future increases uh, will have to come from aquaculture. So it's a pretty big part of the picture. Well, aquaculture then is a major supplier of seafood to the world and to the U.S. How much seafood does the U.S. produce through aquaculture? Are we a leading producer, Mike? I'm afraid uh, that we produce very little uh, aquaculture in this country. Um, our seafood supply, about 90% of it comes from imports. And of the imports, about half of that is aquaculture and about half of that is wildcatcher. But that 10% that is domestically produced and domestically consumed is mostly wild capture fisheries. So you can safely say less than 5% of the seafood that we in the United States comes from domestic aquaculture. Now, that sounds, um, sounds like a very small amount, and, but in real terms, it, it's not that small. It's about 600 million pounds. Uh, the U.S. is the number two consuming country, seafood consuming country in the world. So we do consume a lot because there's a lot of us. We don't consume a lot per capita, but um, it is a small but growing part of our uh, seafood supply. And so it's clear then that the U.S. relies heavily on farm-grown seafood and that little of that is produced here in the United States. Don, is the reason that the U.S. doesn't have the technology, the expertise, and the suitable growing areas, does that explain why we contribute so little? No, I don't believe so, Jerry. Uh, in fact, when you look at one of the largest uh, uh, sources of of farm seafood right now is the salmon industry. 80% of salmon that's marketed worldwide is grown, uh, not caught from the wild. So, uh, and that was a technology that started in the United States as part of replenishment of, of salmon fisheries. So we've been leaders in the development of technology, uh, nutritional technology, the ability to uh, uh, culture new species, but we lack the incentive now because our industry isn't really growing here, especially in marine environments. So we find the technologies we develop now being used by other countries. So a lot of the salmon culture is now actually done in Chile. And 
they're taking the technology we developed and growing the salmon there and now selling it back to us. And it's really a matter of needing to uh, expand the industry into the ocean, away from the coastline, so there's uh, more space that doesn't interfere with other uses, where the water's cleaner, and yet still in close proximity to shore, so that the product can be brought in in a very economical manner. Now, recently, the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, did a study of the countries around the world and ranked them in terms of their potential for open ocean aquaculture. And the U.S. came out very high. Tell us a little bit about that study. Well, the, the first part of the study looks at surface area. And the United States has the largest exclusive economic zone of any other country in the world, except for France. France has a lot of satellite uh, protectorates around the world that increases their size. But when you talk about proximity to your market, the U.S. has the largest EEZ of anywhere in the world, any other country. Now, when you start looking at depths that would be suitable to support aquaculture and you start looking at um, uh, current flow, the United States still ranks first in available space that would be suitable for aquaculture development. And when you think that 70% or so of our a nation's uh, population live within that narrow strip along the coastline, especially here in Southern California, you get an idea that the proximity of where we could produce the food, uh, say four, five, six miles offshore, is very close to the market that, where that seafood will be consumed. So the carbon footprint associated with producing that seafood can be minimized. All right, so global seafood demand is growing. Wild capture fisheries can't meet that demand. We have the area, the technology in the U.S. to be a major contributor, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization, and yet we produce only 5% of what we grow, what we consume here uh, locally. What are the limiting factors then? If it's not technology, if it's not space, uh, ocean conditions, what are the limiting factors? Factors, Don? Well, I think the, the first limiting factor is the idea that we already have a seafood supply chain that uh, provides seafood from other parts of the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. And the diversity of what we have available to us is, is wonderful. But as other parts of the world's economies continue to grow, we're going to find less and less seafood available for our market. That or it's going to get more and more expensive. So the impetus now is we need to produce more domestically. What's the limitation? We just haven't done it yet. So when you go to get a permit to, say, put a, a cage farm out in the ocean, you're working with regulatory agencies that have very little experience with this. Uh, they know how to put an oil rig in. They know how to build a coastal hotel or to uh, put a bridge across a river. But when you tell them, hey, I want to go put a farm five miles out in the ocean, they start to look at you like, well, what, what is that? And so there's not a, a real familiarity on the, on the part of the regulatory community for understanding the requirements, the constraints, and the concerns related to it. Don, we had a, a very weird-looking slide up there a minute ago. I want to see if we can go back to that, and, and I want to have you explain why these different countries, uh, they're such different sizes. What, what's represented there? China is huge. Uh, 
in the U.S. somehow we've shrunk down to almost nothing. What what is this slide showing? Well, if you took the surface area of those uh, of those countries of those parts of the world and uh, weighed them against their productivity and aquaculture production, you'd see that China looks very much like China uh, because China's producing so much of its own seafood. But you look at North America where we're importing 90% of it and so little of what we grow ourselves is from aquaculture, North America turns into what looks like a weedy sea dragon. The same thing with, with Europe. So it's sort of what Mike was talking about earlier. It's very disproportionate where our seafood is being grown. And countries like China and, in fact, that whole region of Asia is where well over 70% of the world's production in aquaculture is occurring because those nations have a high demand and they want to have more self-sufficiency. So they put the effort into developing the technologies and permitting the culture of more seafood in their waters. All right, so the U.S. is the second largest consumer of seafood in the world. We don't produce very much. Is there a chance that the U.S. could become a leader in environmentally responsible offshore aquaculture? It has to be sustainable, environmentally responsible, because we have a strong ocean ethic that we don't want to, to compromise. But it would seem to be that this would be a way to enhance the U.S. position and ensure a stable supply of safe, healthful seafood. What do you think the chances are of this happening? Mike? Well, I think that um, you have to recognize that the U.S. Um, has probably the most comprehensive environmental laws and regulations of, of anywhere in the world. And we, we operate uh, in that way because the, the value is for a healthy ocean. And so at NOAA, while we are working on uh, uh, permitting process and trying to make sure that that's as efficient as it can be, uh, working with other agencies because we have very little uh, regulatory authority in the in the in the ocean, but um, not only on the, the regulatory side, but we are putting a lot of our effort into the science of aquaculture to ensure that very thing that it's sustainable and that it's compatible with with other ocean uses and. And that uh, manifests itself in things like uh, different feeds for fish that don't rely on any one source of uh, protein or lipid, like uh, um, fish meal, fish oil, that kind of thing. It, it also um, includes research on environmental impacts from uh, various aspects of farming and really understanding those. And also tool development, what I like to call tools for rules, and, and that's basically developing models so that we can understand the interactions between aquaculture systems and the environment uh, even before they go in. So we have all of these tools. I think we have the governance and we have the, um, the science to do this properly. It's just a, a matter right now really of, of, of moving forward and, and getting the information into the hands of the people that are making decisions. Don, would you like to add to that? I certainly would. I, I, I agree with Mike. We have basically all the tools we need. And we do have a structured regulatory environment that would allow the development of aquaculture. What we need to do is, is go out and try it. We need to go out and develop some demonstration farms in different regions of the United States that basically we can study that will not only produce seafood on a commercially viable scale, but also do it in a manner 
through that through an analysis in looking at effluent characteristics, uh, changes if they occur in the sediments on the bottom, uh, the occurrence of disease, the growth rates, the conversion efficiencies of the feed, uh, the, the economic viability will all lead towards uh, a better sense of uh, comfort on the part of folks that aquaculture can be developed on a large scale in our country, use a very small portion of the area of our oceans to support it, and will be not only environmentally uh, de minimis in its impacts, but also economically viable. And I think that's a key component to sustainability. We need to worry about feeding more of our population better quality seafood with a low, that's produced with a lower carbon footprint that doesn't at the same time take away from uh, the, the resources, the natural resources we have available to us or change the habitats that either the wild populations of fish or the ocean environment and in essence the farms themselves to rely upon. We need to keep our, our oceans clean so that they not only continue to produce some of the seafood that we get, but they can produce the future, that, the seafood we need for the future as well. I want to uh, ask a question about the feed, because one of the criticisms of some kinds of aquaculture, at least, is that we're, we're feeding fish, uh, catching fish, and feeding them to fish that we're trying to grow, and that we're depleting some of the stocks. Uh, and there have been major advances in the, the feed for aquaculture and uh, reducing the reliance on, on fish and uh, fish meal and fish oil, as you, you've mentioned. Tell us something about how we have been able to transform carnivorous fish into omnivorous fish so they have a mixed diet. Don, I think you're the, the guy who's the expert there. Well, actually, um, I defer that to Mike. Mike's actually the, the, the nutritionist, scientist, and really much more familiar. We do research in this area, but I'm going to defer to Mike on this one, if that's okay. Fill us in. Yeah, sure. I can I can uh, talk to that. I mean, I think that this idea that carnivores need carne is is um, is an interesting and easy to understand kind of concept. But it just turns out that it's not true. That um, you don't have to feed uh, fish meal to a carnivorous fish to get them to grow. What fish need are are about forty different nutrients um, in the proper ratio. They need to be protected from things we call anti nutrients or things that could make them sick uh, in their feed. And um, it needs to taste good. And basically, you can provide those nutrients from a variety of sources. So sustainability is, is uh, in the feed area is about having choices more than having any one type of ingredient for feed. Um, there are diets that have been done experimentally for uh, carnivorous fish such as salmon, um, trout, sea bass, sea bream, uh, many, many different species based entirely on plant materials. So you can turn a, uh, a carnivorous fish into a vegan. You're not really changing the fish. You're changing, you're just providing for it what it needs. All right, thank you. So we have the technology in the U.S. We have the expertise. We have the appropriate growing areas. We have a regulatory system that will ensure that we protect the ocean and human health but we don't have the public support to move forward with a major national aquaculture program. I wanted two things. First of all, if, if we don't do anything, 
Can we continue to rely on farm-grown seafood from China and other Asian countries? And then I want to come back to increasing public support. But what about it? Can we rely on the, the chain, food chains, uh, supply chains that we have? Mike? Well, so, so China um, has a, a growing middle class, as I think we all know. And, and China's production is, uh, uh, is increasingly going to build domestic markets in China. Uh, a few years ago, China was one of the leading shrimp exporters, for example. Now it is a, a net shrimp importer. And uh, people expect that um, all seafood will be, it'll be, an all, be a net importer of all seafood in, within the next decade. So I don't think we can rely on China. The, the other issue is that same FAO study that showed U.S. number one in area with, a, with a, an EEZ suitable for offshore aquaculture greater than the size of the state of California um, showed that China has actually a limited ability to go offshore for some of the same depth and current and, and EEZ considerations, as well as some of their inland and their, their coastal um, areas are, are becoming too crowded for uh, increased aquaculture production. So I don't think we should be relying on, on that for our seafood production. Um, we lose control as well uh, in terms of, of the uh, quantity and quality that's made available to us. Don, would you like to add to that? Well, certainly. Um, there's another example. But the uh, Chilean salmon that I mentioned earlier, the U.S. spends $120-$130 million a year to fly that salmon into our markets. And the Brazilian economy is growing, and there's greater demand for salmon in Brazil. So there's a 120 to 130 million dollar uh, cost structure there that allows the Brazilians to outcompete us for the uh, the purchase of that salmon. So uh, invariably, what's going to happen is we're going to have to pay more for it, or we're going to have to start growing it ourselves. And even if it's a little more expensive to grow it here, it's still cheaper than growing it in another country and then flying it in. So there's a huge opportunity here because of the constraints on the supply globally of what's going on in this increased demand. And quite honestly, when we talk about sustainability, we ought to be talking about becoming more self-reliant. Why should the seafood that we're eating have more air miles than, than the person eating it? Uh, may have in a, in a given year. So uh, we need to quit flying our seafood in from all over the world and start becoming more self-sustaining. I suppose there's another answer to this. So we could all reduce our consumption of seafood. But the, the problem there is, I think, much of the medical, the health literature, says that we should eat more rather than less seafood. What, what, what's your take on, on that? Mike? Yeah, um... I wish it was so simple. Uh, I think uh, that everything is saying that we should be eating more seafood in this country rather than less. I think we all remember the, the food pyramid that was recently replaced by the My Plate um, uh, graphic uh, FDA and USDA did in 2010. And one of the, the recommendations from that is that Americans double their seafood consumption from somewhere around 15 pounds per person per year up to close to 30 pounds per person per year. That's, um, that's two servings about the size of an iPhone uh, like this every week. So um, that's more than we most, most of us eat. Um, and really decades of, 
of research has shown that um, seafood is health food. And in fact, there's a study out um, by some guys at Harvard, which would indicate that our current level of consumption and with the current U.S. diet, um, the lack of eating seafood in the diet is actually killing somewhere around 80,000 Americans a year, uh, potentially is what they estimate. That's a, that's a number that's larger than uh, the number of people that die in car accidents every year. So it's, it's significant. Um, in the absence of a, a robot domestic um, aquaculture, uh, for all the reasons we said, um, I, uh, I worry about that supply and the prices and the quality and availability. Um, we just can't rely on other countries, but clearly we also can't uh, cut back on our seafood consumption for, for health reasons. So it's clear that uh, we need to produce more environmentally responsible aquaculture uh, grown seafood, that um, we have the potential to do it here. But given the rich history of our coastal fishing communities, is aquaculture a threat to them or are there potential benefits for fishermen if we were to increase our ocean aquaculture production in the U.S.? Don, we'll start with you. I think there's tremendous potential. I think for one thing, this, the existing seafood industry and infrastructure um, is established for uh, providing seafood to the market. The, the vessel goes out, captures fish and shellfish, brings it back in, and it falls into a downstream uh, distribution system, processing and distribution. All we're talking about here is changing or adding to that by, by putting cages or strings of shellfish offshore that then you go to to harvest the fish and bring it into that downstream chain. Now, who's going to be doing that growing and that harvesting? It's not going to be guys like me in a laboratory with a white lab coat. It's going to be fishermen. And what we're, the model we're seeing just south of the border here in uh, south of California and Mexico is that commercial fishermen are the ones that are becoming the fish farmers. They're going out and raising the fish. They know how to work the boats in the open water. They know how to work the product and, and prepare it and, and get it ready for market. And these are the guys that can be trained to use their existing skill set to add to it and create a whole new source of seafood that goes into that supply chain. So I think it's a tremendous opportunity for the seafood community. I also think it's a big opportunity for coastal communities in general because they don't have to rebuild infrastructure to support the industry. The docks where the, the boats tie up, the processing plants are already there. So we're just talking about increasing the number of jobs in those plants. It's estimated for every thousand tons of production, there's 40 jobs created and supported by fish farming. So 10,000 tons is, is 400 jobs in the seafood industry. And, and Jerry, you're, you're in Long Beach. Between Long Beach and San Diego, we were the fishing capital of the world back in the 70s with the tuna fleet. There were 10,000 jobs in fishing here in Southern California alone. Those are gone now. The tuna industry's left. So there's an opportunity for job creation and sustaining here uh, and keeping those docks we've already invested in, keeping them active with a whole new source of protein going into the market. You want to add to that? Yeah, if I could, if I, I mean, I agree with um, what Don is saying, and if I could just add that um, while the aquaculture industry could be entirely separate from the uh, commercial fishing industry, in, 
all the countries that have significant um, aquaculture production in the marine environment, it's really more of an integration. If you look at Japan, Korea, China, Norway, the seafood industry uses both aquaculture and captured fisheries to provide seafood to a market. And fishermen there really just consider aquaculture as a different gear type or a different method of producing seafood. Okay, thank you. Now, we haven't done a very good job of getting the story out to the public about ocean aquaculture, the advances in technology, the science. Um, do you, either of you have any thoughts of how we could do a better job of, of doing this? Because it's clear that many of the public perceptions are anti-aquaculture. What should we be doing? Don? Well, I think the, the proof is in the show me. By having it uh, available for, for people to see, by having the product coming to the dock and available to people to purchase, to take home and eat, uh, I think is the first step. I also think we need to do a job with the supply chain. We need to talk to the chefs. We need to talk to the, the news people. Uh, give them the opportunity to see an, an operating farm. Uh, make sure that we're transparent in the information that we look at relative to environmental impacts, such that what's reported about uh, effluent characteristics or uh, changes to the sediment composition on the bottom under the cages or under the strings of, of mussels is something that's available to see so people can have a better understanding that uh, what the impacts are, even if there are impacts. So it really comes down to having an industry that people can have a familiarity with, that can have an acceptance of instead of this dark, mysterious thing that nobody really knows anything about because they've never seen an offshore cage farm. Mike, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think I think uh, Don hit it on the uh, on the head there very nicely. But um, I think you also have to realize that none of us grew up on a fish farm. This is this is relatively new for us, other than in Hawaii that has a several thousand year history with, with fish farms. Aquaculture is a new concept, and that's different than in those areas like China and Japan and Asia, where aquaculture has been practiced for three thousand years. So we don't have a, a cultural history uh, for aquaculture, and I think that. That seeing it is, is important and for people to understand exactly what it is. Um, we all live in Missouri, but show me sweet. So um, I think that's a, an important uh, opportunity. Um, working with media, I think it is good, except in this case, it's a good news story. And good news doesn't sell newspapers, so I'm not sure that we're going to make too much headway in that video. I have to say, I'm disappointed that neither of you guys mentioned aquariums. I would have thought that since they, aquariums in the United States get 25 million people a year coming to them. People come because they care about marine life it, and they trust in aquariums and the messages that we deliver. Isn't there a role and maybe even a responsibility for aquariums in getting this story out? I'd like to ask either of you to comment on that. Well, I think that's an excellent idea, Jerry. Um, I think that aquariums are uniquely positioned to, to tell this story. So um, I think of uh, I think of the many hours that I've spent in aquariums, and it's always been so enjoyable and so beautiful, and, and it would be a great opportunity to provide education in aquaculture. Don, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry for that, Jerry. I, I mean, I, I grew up in San Diego. I... Uh, twice a year, we went to the Scripps Aquarium at SIO. Um, 
I grew up at SeaWorld and at the San Diego Zoo. And, and for a living now, I, I study marine animals and, and try to conserve the ocean world. So the messaging that comes across from aquariums is vital. And uh, it's, it, uh, it can also be that source of contact with the community. You can't take the citizens of, of uh, Los Angeles all out to see a cage farm off the coast, but there could be live video feed into an aquarium. There could be education materials in an aquarium. Uh, there could be opportunities to see the larval fish from a hatchery growing up to be juvenile fish that then get shifted into a cage to educate school kids and, and the public in general about the entire aquaculture process. The only downside, of course, is that most people when they go to an aquarium are thinking they're looking at Nemo there. And having Nemo for dinner is something that, you know, maybe hasn't uh, uh, come across well with the general public. But uh, there is a certain uh, uh, opportunity that is available uh, for educating the public through aquarium. Uh, this has been a really good discussion, I think. Uh, I want to ask each of you if you have any parting thoughts. We're running out of time here. But, Don, would, do you have a parting thought? And then Mike. Yeah, I, and I think it comes down to, to bring it all together. Uh, I think if we're going to be good stewards of the ocean, if we're going to be concerned about the environment and be faced with the idea that we need more seafood and it's got to come from somewhere, then it's incumbent on us to grow that seafood ourselves. We can't keep passing our responsibilities over to other countries and have them grow the seafood for us and just pay them whatever they want for it and not ask any questions about how it was grown. Well, if, if we want to have a reliable supply of seafood that's affordable and grown in an environmentally sustainable manner, we should do that ourselves. And it's time to quit talking about these things. The debate's been great. We've been doing it for decades now. But it's really time to stop doing the talking and start doing the doing of it. Thank you, Don. Mike, would you like to have a parting thought? Yeah, sure. I mean, thank you very much for setting this up. This has been very enjoyable. Um, I think uh, as we as we kind of end, I'd like to take a step back. And we've talked about um, seafood and seafood supply issues. But I'd like to take a step back and talk about food in general and, and how nutrition uh, and health is related. Um, we've heard this, the expression, think globally and act locally. And, and globally, one out of eight people uh, in, the United, in the world still lives with chronic hunger. That's, that's 840-some-odd million people um, at a, an amount greater than two times the population of the United States. Locally, our issue is not um, quantity so much as quality. We eat in the United States a lot of junk, um, and it's killing us. So I think uh, we need to think about health food, and seafood is health food. Um, right now, we get our food from the land. 98% of, well, of our food and fiber and all of our biofuels come from land agriculture. And that's great. That land agriculture uh, covers a portion of the, of the land mass of about 37%. And not only that, it uses about two-thirds of our fresh water. Um, these are these are resources that we really need to be keeping um, uh, tabs of and being efficient with. Uh, on the other side, the ocean covers seven percent of the of the world. It provides us about two percent of our uh, food. Given an area of, of only one percent of that uh, that ocean area, uh, you could 
produce an amount of seafood about equal to all of the land food produced. So I think we really do need to step back and view these things in context and see, you know, what are our opportunities here and whether we do more than just think globally, if we actually do act locally and develop a significant ocean culture in the United States. That's a chapter that's yet to be written, um, a decision that really the American people will make. Uh, I look forward to seeing what happens. Um, and uh, that's about it. Well, I want to thank Don Kent and Michael Rust for joining me for this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank my colleague, Kim Thompson, Manager of Seafood for the Future, for helping to organize this session. And we particularly want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. We hope you will join us for the next Coastal Conversation on February 19th, when we will explore the topic, Responding to the New Normal Along the Nation's Coast. What will it take? I will be joined by Dr. Michael Orbach, Professor Emeritus, Duke University, and Margaret Davidson, Director of NOAA's Ocean and Coastal Resource Management Div Division. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations. <laughs>